All right, let's continue on here with um, these verses that cessationists will tend to use. The most common one is that one in 1 Corinthians 13. The second most common one that they would use is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 20. And it reads as follows. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And that's what they would use. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the reasoning goes that since the foundation has been laid, therefore there's no more need of apostles and prophets. So the purpose, according to that way of viewing the scripture, is that the purpose of apostles and prophets was solely to lay down the foundation of the church. In other words, to get the doctrine out, to get the New Testament written, to get the theology sorted out, uh, to get all that out and present it to the church. It's been laid, and now that it's been done, obviously there's no more need of apostles or, or prophets. And because there's no more need of apostles and prophets, then there's no more needs of miracles to confirm the ability of apostles and prophets to lay the foundation. You follow the the line of reasoning that they use. However, to read that into that verse is to take something out of its context. That thought isn't anywhere in Paul's mind when he writes that. The plain reading of the context is how Gentiles have now been included with the Jews in the household of God. That's the theme. It's it's speaking about how Gentiles are included in the house of God. That God has taken down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. The theme is that there's equality in Christ Jesus. The fact is that Christ himself is the cornerstone not the apostles and not the prophets. The apostles not the cornerstone, the prophets not the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself is that cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul would say, no other foundation can be laid except that which we have laid. And that foundation is Christ Jesus. Uh, Christ will build his own church. Matthew 16.18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ himself is the foundation, and then through the gifts that he gives people, he builds his own church. Um, Consistency would argue that if the foundational ministries of the apostle and the prophet were no longer needed, then consistency would say, well, neither is their foundation needed either, which is nobody would say uh, such a thing. The ministries of the apostle and the prophet I do not believe were done away with after the foundation of the church was laid because Paul is writing this very epistle as an apostle himself. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this verse, but if somebody establishes a company or somebody is a founding member of a new company, does that mean in the future there can be no more directors and no more presidents? Or if it goes on for centuries, 
you know, somebody else becomes president. And so to say that, that that verse in Ephesians assumes that the only responsibility of the apostles and the prophets was to write the scripture is not what that verse is about at all. That's not the context of it all. Personally, I believe Ephesians 4.11, God gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Some people call it a fivefold ministry. Some people call it fourfold. I believe in teacher and pastor are one and the same thing. It doesn't really matter what we believe. But I would say if apostles and prophets are obsolete, since they're grouped together in Ephesians 4.11, then I guess pastors should be obsolete as well. Evangelists should be obsolete. Teachers should be obsolete. Um, the fact the fact is this: the Bible has got plenty of scriptures to suggest that there were apostles. Here's a test for you: How many apostles do you think are named in the New Testament? How many could you identify by name? You know the answer is 28. 12 original, and there's 16 but after that that are specifically named as apostles. Interesting, isn't it? 28 people. Prophets. When a prophet ministers, does it always mean that he's laying a foundation down for the church? There's examples in Acts chapter 21, verse 9. Philip had four daughters which did prophesy. Does that mean they were laying down the foundation for the, for the church? I don't think so. There's a prophet by the name of Agabus in Acts 21, verses 10 to 11, who went down, and I think that's the scripture that talks about a famine coming through the land. Let me just double check it. 21, 10 to 11. Well, if that's when he went to, uh, to Paul and saying, whoever owns this belt is going to be bound once he gets into Jerusalem. Prophetic ministry that's not involved with laying the foundation of the church. I believe it's Acts chapter 11, the same prophet Agabus uh, told of a famine that was going to come in the land and the church was able to prepare for this famine that was going to come. That's prophetic ministry that wasn't laying the foundation of the church. So there's apostolic ministry. The word apostle simply means somebody who's sent out. And my conviction, and this is where, in my opinion, some of the foolishness out there in the larger charismatic world is people have made apostle to be this super office, the most preeminent, powerful person that God could ever anoint is into this massive role as the apostle and I think that's sheer foolishness if apostles are a foundation they're not on top folks, they're underneath it's not a hierarchy that leads up if you're, if you're apostolic you're in the basement where nobody can see you it's foundational I think there's a lot of foolishness out there about apostles and prophets. And I've seen it all. I know how much you might have seen, but you know, I've got a business card. Apostle. 
so-and-so. Here's my card, prophet, so-and-so. And it is abundant. There's a lots of it, and I think it's foolishness. Where's the card that says, invisible servant? Well, if you were invisible servant, you wouldn't even be giving out a card, would you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just some, some foolishness here. Um, but according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, you know, and the verses following that, God's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints till they come to the, the fullness of the stature of Christ, the unity of the faith, and so forth. And when is that going to happen? Again, it happens perfectly when Jesus appears, when that which is not yet uh, becomes fulfilled. And all that will take place at the appearing of Jesus. According to Ephesians 4.11, we need the gifts of God. We need the, the people who are sent out. We need the prophetic insight. We need the teachers. We need the evangelists. We need the, the pastor shepherds to build the church into what it should be. These are the tools that God has chosen to build the church. If you're going to build a physical house, you want your carpenters, your joiners, you want your, your sparks or your electricians, you want your plumbers, you want your cement workers, you want, you want it all. You know, in today's day and age in this country in which we live, you would not build your house without plumbing in it, would you? Anybody here do that? Would you build your house without electricity these days? Of course you wouldn't. And yet we're willing to, to build churches that don't have any prophetic input. We're willing to have churches that don't have any evangelistic thrust. We're willing to build churches that, you know, that have no teaching. You know, Silliness. The goal is to come into the stature of the fullness of Christ, to take on Christ, to grow and develop in Christ's character, develop in Christ's ability. And to, since that's the goal in Ephesians 4, you need all of these ministries. And so, yes, God did use original prophets and, and apostles, and yes, there was the foundation laying of the church, but there's plenty of apostolic and prophetic ministry that's not involved in, in laying down the foundations of Scripture. You know the difficulty that is there is that it is often thought that prophecy is adding to the scripture. It's not. Prophecy is not adding to the scripture. Prophecy is encouragement, it's exhortation, it's comfort. Sometimes prophecy is instructive. Sometimes there's predictive prophecy. Sometimes there's revelational prophecy. But none of that is adding to the scripture. None of it. It's always subject to the scripture and judged by the scripture. Nobody's adding to the scripture. Nobody's laying further new foundations and new revelations that's never been heard. Nobody's doing that. And so Ephesians chapter 2 is simply well taken out of context when they use that to suggest that miracles have ceased. Very quickly, another scripture that people use is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And again, it hardly needs any comment, but sometimes that verse is used. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times, in a diverse manner, spoken times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. 
In other words, now that Jesus has come, we don't need prophets. That's how God used to speak. Now that Jesus has come, that old way of speaking through prophets is now done away with. That God only now speaks through his Son, which, according to their interpretation, is only through Scripture. However, yes, the Son could speak through Scripture, But can't he speak through gifts of the Spirit as well? There's nothing in that verse that suggests. Nothing in that verse that suggests that God can't speak any way he wants to speak through his Son. It's just that argument is built on the misconception that prophecy is equal to Scripture. Nobody is suggesting a prophetic word has the same weight as Scripture. Nobody. And it's just a fallacy built on that. The other fourth verse that is often used is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. A cessationist would often refer to these verses. Chapter 2, 3 and 4, How should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? This salvation at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Their way of interpreting that is that the signs and the wonders, the gifts of the Spirit, was only for that first generation of believers. Adding verses 2, 3, and 4 together. It was only for those who witnessed Jesus or that first generation after Jesus ascended. That reasoning is very flawed because the New Testament is full of evidence that there were many people who never saw the Lord that were used in signs and wonders. Many people who never met Jesus in the flesh that God used in signs and wonders. It's an argument from silence and that doesn't hold water. It doesn't say that those who didn't see Jesus could not have signs and wonders. It doesn't say that. It's just fallacy. It's just it's reaching its straws. It's trying to read into Scripture things that the Scripture is not saying. And those four sets of verses, 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, are the main uh, ammunition that the cessationists would use to try to speak that gifts of the Spirit are not to exist today. However, I'm here to testify, I believe with all my heart, Pentecost is real. God wants to fill people with His Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are valid, not only valid, that's not saying it's strong enough. Because if I say they're valid, people might still think, well, optional. They're not optional. The Kingdom of Heaven has come. And the gospel that we preach is a gospel both of word and power. And the gifts of the Spirit are not optional. So we have to ask God for them. We have to press for them. We have to take an attitude, this is not optional stuff. We have to press forward. We have to check our motives. We have to yield. The gifts are necessary for the building of the church. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, which we just quoted recently, and God gave some apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, 
till we all come to the unity of faith, to the fullness of the stature of Christ, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but we would grow up and edify one another in love. That whole passage there is a quote from the book of Psalms. Now go, go to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Verses 16 to 18. Now this is a reference to Mount Zion of all places. Have you heard about that recently? David's tabernacle and Mount Zion. It says, Psalm 68:16. Why do you leap, you high hills? This is the hill that God desires to dwell in. Do you remember from our message on last Sunday that the Ark of the Covenant, when it came, when David brought the Ark back, he didn't put it back to Shiloh. He didn't put it back into the tabernacle of Moses. He erected a tent on a place called Mount Zion. And he says, this is the hill that God wants to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, just like he was in Sinai. Now he's in this place. Verse 18, and you have ascended on high. And you have led captivity captive, and you have received gifts for men. Yea, even for the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell among them. See, those verses there, verse 18, is what Paul quotes in Ephesians chapter 4. Now that he has ascended, he has given gifts. Amen. Now, that gifts weren't just for 30, 50 years. He's given gifts to the church. And the context of, of Psalm 68, verses 16 and 18, is the establishment of the house of the Lord, that he might make himself known to his people, that he might take up residence, that people have access to that Ark of the Covenant, access to the throne of God. There is no veil. And to build that sanctuary, he's given gifts. And the purpose of those gifts is to build the house of the Lord. Therefore, we need the apostle, we need the prophet, we need the evangelist, we need the pastor, we need the teacher. Because they're building the house of the Lord. If you look at two scriptures, one in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, where he quotes Isaiah chapter 8. So I'm going to have you look at two scriptures, Hebrews 2 and Isaiah chapter 8. Hebrews 2, verses 11 to 13, talking about one of the reasons why Jesus took on flesh and blood, why he became a human man, why God took on humanity. Hebrews 2:11. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them his brothers, saying, and he quotes a variety of scriptures, I would declare my name, or that your name, unto my brothers. In the midst of the church, in the midst of what? The church will I sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. Now, I and the children which God has given me is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. In the midst of the church, I will praise you. In the midst of my brethren, my, the children that God has given me. Now look at Isaiah chapter 8, where this quote is taken from. And verse chapter 8 from 14 down to 18, it reads like this. 
and he shall be for a sanctuary. And I want you to hear the word sanctuary. He shall be for a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many among them will stumble, fall, and be broken, snared, and taken, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob. I will look for him. And here's the quote. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. There's that building of the sanctuary on Mount Zion. And to build that, the house of the Lord requires the presence of the miraculous. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are required for the house of God to be built. We're the people of the Lord. The plain statement of Isaiah, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. So the gifts of the Spirit manifest the core activity of our mission to preach the kingdom. You've heard me say this often, I will say it again. Our role in evangelism is to lead people to an encounter with God, to an experience with God, and in so doing, physical and spiritual ruin is displaced by the power of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Now, the gifts do not validate a ministry, and the gifts do not validate that somebody's got their doctrine right. I have seen plenty of people over my lifetime that had genuine gifts of God, but their doctrine and theology was quite poor. The gifts do not say that everything I believe is theologically correct. What the gifts do is they validate the fact that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus is ascended, and they validate the proof of the gospel. They don't validate that the the person's got all their doctrine right. That's an important thing because we can tend to run after people you know that, well, we just can't be wrong. Look at how God uses them. Well, yeah, you can be wrong theologically. Can be. It's the gifts are proof that Jesus is alive, and that's the important thing. Now let's at this point switch over and start going now to the gifts of healing in particular. As I said earlier, it's not going to be possible to cover everything on the topic of praying for the sick. That's simply not going to happen today. Why are some people healed, others are not? Not going to get there today. Why does everybody that Jesus ministered to healed, 100%, but not the apostles? We'll get to that question today. Can somebody lay hands on you and impart to you a gift? The answer to that is no, but we won't get into that topic today. Though it is popular, I'm going to give you, I'm going to pray for you. Let me give you the gift of healing. Let me give you a gift of prophecy. Let me give you a gift of whatever. And that's, that's foolishness. Misreading 
a variety of scriptures. But let's go to the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Verses 29 and 30. The context of Acts chapter 4 is that there was a man at the gate called Beautiful that was healed. He was 40 years old. Silver and gold have I none, Peter said. But such as I have, give I you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he went leaping and walking and praising God. And for the first time in his life, he went into the temple because people with infirmities and cripples were not allowed there before. It caused a commotion. Peter preaches. 3,000 people get saved. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Baptized in the water. Joined to the church. Lord adding to the church daily. Such as should be saved uh, to the, a group called the Sadducees in chapter 4 verse 1. The Sadducees was that group who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. and They didn't believe in, in angels or spirit or anything like this. And and here these disciples are preaching Jesus is raised from the dead and that goes contrary to what their statement of faith was. And so they attacked the church. And the twelve apostles are attacked, they're persecuted, they're threatened. And it's a difficult time of persecution for the church right at the beginning. Their response to the persecution is to have a prayer meeting. If that's what it takes to get people to prayer meetings, then let's have, no, I won't go there. But chapter 4 and verse 29, it says their response is to pray, is this prayer. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy child, Jesus. Their response to suffering and persecution was to pray that there would be an increase in the miraculous. I like that. An increase in the miraculous. Because they knew that they needed great boldness. And they knew they needed great encouragement. And they knew they needed great grace to press forward if the message of the gospel and the power of the kingdom has come is met with that kind of resistance, then they needed the power of God to push this thing forward. That's an important thing to notice in your Bible. They prayed for it. Because there's a lot of opposition and we need the power. We need the power. The gospel that we preach is more than justification. The gospel that we preach is more than personal salvation. The gospel that we preach is that the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated. has not yet consummated. But the message that we preach is that the kingdom has been inaugurated. And in that message of the kingdom, there's the reality of the forgiveness of sins. There's the reality of being born again. There's the reality of the remission of sins. But it also is wider than that. Included is the demonstration of the power of God so that sins are forgiven, but the powers of darkness spiritually and physically are broken in people's lives. If you won't say amen, I will. Amen.
It's to break the powers of darkness in people's lives. It's to set people free. It's to heal broken bodies. It's to, to reunite broken marriages. It's to deliver people from addictions. It's to deliver people from demonic influences. It's to transform their whole nature and the whole heart. It's far more than saying a sinner's prayer so I can go to heaven when I die. Thank God you're going to go to heaven when you die, but thank God for the power of God to deliver you in the here and in the now. Amen. You know, that's the gospel of the kingdom. And I'm assuming everybody that's listening to me We'll say amen and agrees with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul challenges the Corinthians on an issue. And he says, I hope you have more than talk. He says, because the kingdom is not in word only, but show me the power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 The kingdom is not just word only, but it is power. And I think we have to grasp the message that we're to preach. That we are not preaching only and limited to justification. And we're only not preaching and we're not just limited to being born again. We're not just limiting our preaching of the gospel to saying a sinner's prayer that you might be forgiven. That's part of the package. But we are not, that's not the fullness of the gospel. The message we are preaching is more than personal salvation. The message we are preaching is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived in the person of Jesus. Amen. His whole life is the ministry of the kingdom. Every metaphor he used is the kingdom. His message was the kingdom. His parables were about the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. His whole message is the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And all that he taught and all that he said and all that he did was to lay the foundation and to introduce the kingdom. And then when he died and he rose and he ascended and he poured out the Spirit, it was given credentials to the kingdom. And now that we're preaching, it's the message of the kingdom that we are preaching. And it always comes in power. Matthew 4, just look at these verses. Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25. Some summary statements about Jesus. Matthew 4, 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those possessed with devils, those that were lunatic, those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. His fame went everywhere because his gospel came with the power to heal the sick and power to drive out demons. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and in the process, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. 
Chapter 12, verse 28, If I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom has come nigh unto you. His ministry was always accompanied by the miraculous, especially healing the sick and casting out demons. When Jesus sent his twelve disciples out, he shared with them that very same authority because they were to share the same message. In Luke chapter 9, when he sends out his, is it the twelve there? In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Yeah, there it is. He gave them power and authority over devils to cure sicknesses. Verse 2, and it says, And he sent them out to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. In chapter 10, when he sends out the 70, uh, he takes 70 and he sends them two by two into every place that he was going to come. And he talks about the harvest is great and laborers are few. But when they go out, if you skip down to verse number... Uh, 9 it says when you go heal the sick that are there and say to them that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you the message of the kingdom come is healing for the sick that's basically what it says when Jesus called his disciples in chapter 3 of the gospel of Mark for what purpose did he call them? Mark 3, verses 14 and 15. He ordained twelve that they should be with them, and he sent them forth to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. In chapter 6, when he sends, Mark 6, verses 7 to 13, when he sends the twelve disciples out on mission trips, it says they to preach everywhere that men should repent. He gave them power over unclean spirits, Verse number 13, they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. The same is true in Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 to 8 when Jesus commissions those 12 to go out at this point only to the lost sheep of Israel. But you go out there and you say the kingdom has come and you heal the sick and you cleanse the leper. Even said raise the dead I believe in that passage. In other words, they were to go out with dynamic power. Is that not what it says? Am I reading that? Am I misreading? That they were sent out not with gradual results, but they were sent out with dynamic power for powerful, dynamic manifestations that were intended to grab the attention of multitudes of people. That's how Jesus sent his disciples out. The end of the Gospel of Mark. If you believe that there's not an addition later, but these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick. They should recover. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They drink any deadly thing and won't hurt them. And you know that scripture. And it says, And the Lord working with them as they preached the word. And even if you don't believe that those are part of the original Gospel of Mark, all those signs you can find in the book of Acts anyway. So, they all happened. Now, the question that we have that a cessationist would want to raise is that was for the original twelve only. Does it refer to us or not? I have difficulty with that because in the Great Commission of Matthew 28... 
verses 19 and 20. Even though the Great Commission does not specifically say pray for the sick, it does say this, go into all nations, make nations uh, disciples of them all, teaching them all things that I commanded you. And obviously one of the things that Jesus commanded was praying for the sick. Obviously, that is there. The Great Commission is a command to teach everything that Jesus taught, which obviously included the practice of healing. The gospel that we're to preach, according to Matthew 24 and verse 14, is the gospel of the kingdom. So this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world. Then shall the end come. So our message to the world, to the lost and the perishing, is that the kingdom has arrived. That's our message. Our message is that the kingdom has arrived. We're to herald the message of the gospel. Yes, signs and wonders. I don't believe that signs and wonders should be our focus. Lifting up Jesus is the focus. The gospel is our focus. But the gospel is demonstrated by the signs and the wonders. In other words, let me put it this way. Miracles and healings are not the gospel itself, but they are an expression of the gospel. Miracles and healings are the evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. Miracles and healings demonstrate that he is alive. He's in authority. And the kingdom has arrived and has a king right now. Even though we're waiting for its consummation, he's victorious. And the miracles are to demonstrate that fact. For instance, go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. In verses 12 to 16. All sorts of people are gathered around Peter because this man at the gate called Beautiful has just been miraculously healed. Well, here's an opportunity. When Peter saw it, verse 12, he answered unto the people, saying, You men of Israel, why are you surprised at this? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do we think it's incredible that God should do miracles? Why are we surprised at such a notion? Why have we put limits on God? If God could create the heavens and the earth, why are we surprised that he would want to do a miracle? He said, why do you marvel at this? Or why are you looking, your eyes fastened on me, Peter? Why are you looking, are you focused on us, Peter and John? Why are you boring holes in us with your eyes? Why? As though by our power, our holiness, we made this man to walk. I haven't got the power to heal somebody, Peter is saying. It's not of me, it's not of man. It says, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. His son, Jesus, has been glorified. You delivered him up. You denied him in the presence of Pilate when Pilate wanted to let him go. You denied the Holy One, the just. You desired to murder Barabbas to be granted instead of Jesus. You killed the Prince of Life. But God raised him from the dead. And now we are giving you evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. We are witnesses to this. And it's through faith in his name that has made this man strong that you see and you know him. 
The faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. That healing of the man who was lame for 40 years was evidence that Jesus was ascended and raised from the dead. It was testimony. You see, there are plenty of scriptures, even in the Old Testament, that show that God wants to give credibility to the message of the gospel by supernatural signs and wonders. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 4, Moses? Do you remember Moses? When he was humbled by 40 years in the desert, and God calls him, and I'm going to send you back into Egypt, and you're going to... Oh, I can't speak. Who am I? God, you can find someone better than me. I'm sure you could. Quite a change from a man who 40 years ago was willing to take on an Egyptian and kill him physically. Quite a 40 years does something to you in the wilderness. You know, it's a good thing to be broken. Lose your self-confidence. Because you've got to have your confidence in God. And so, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to... So what's that in your hand, Moses? Staff. Throw it on the ground. Turns into a snake. Pick it up. I'm sure you didn't want to do that either. Picks it up and turns back to a staff. Now put your hand in, inside your shirt and take it out. Oh, it's leprous. Put it back in. Oh, it's made whole. It said, if they don't believe you, just show them the signs. Show them the signs. To bring credibility to the witness that we have. Exodus 14.31 After they crossed the Red Sea it says the people they believed God. They believed Moses. 1 Kings 17 17 17-24 You know Elijah was looked after by the widow of Zarephath. She didn't exactly know what to make of the strange man staying at her house. All we know is that the oil never runs out and there's always food and seems to multiply. But who is this? But when her son died, when her son died, and when Elijah was used of God to raise the widow's son from the dead, she said, Yeah, you're a man of God. Yeah, I believe in your God. That miracle did something. First Kings eighteen thirty nine. We'll come back to this later on Mount Carmel. A direct open confrontation between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God. The prophets of Baal versus Elijah. Who is God? Who are you going to serve? What culture are you going to submit to? What worldview are you going to submit to? The God who answers by fire. Well, the fire fell when Elijah prayed. You know what? They all fell on their face and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. There was a, a power encounter there that caused people to know who really was God. Second Kings 5, verses 14 and 15 the Syrian army has a general by the name of Naaman. Leprosy. Go dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan River. 
Ah, he says, they're going to clean the rivers back in Syria than the yucky Jordan. Who wants to get baptized or dunked in the Jordan River? It's yucky. Somebody said, if he would have asked you some hard thing, you wouldn't have done it. This is a simple thing. Okay, he does it. You know, and he goes down seven times and he comes up totally cured. You know what he says? There's no God like your God. And he believed in the God of Israel after he received a miracle. So these have power for, for evangelism. Acts 2.22, it says Jesus was accredited by God through the miracles that he performed. Accredited by God through the miracles he performed. There's something we need to recover. There is no doubt that the early church in the book of Acts lived in the atmosphere and the expectation of the miraculous. And I want to emphasize that word expectation. When we come to church on Sunday, what do I come expecting? Do we come with anticipation? Do we come with expectation? Do we understand who we're come to worship? Do we understand who we're meeting with? Do we understand we're invited into His very presence? There is no veil between Him and His presence. Do we come with expectation? There is no doubt when I read the New Testament, you know, and I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody here, because I'm human, like we're all human, and sometimes we can just... Well, we've all had better days, you know. But there's no doubt that that early church came with expectation and anticipation. There's no doubt about it. Let me just read and let these scriptures speak for themselves. Acts 2, 41-47. The 3,000 saved the day of Pentecost. I mean, look, look what happened to them. It says... That they that gladly received this word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Oh Lord, may it be. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. They lived in this expectant anticipating atmosphere of what God can do. And all that believed were together held all things commonly, even sold their possessions and good part of them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they were busy fellowshipping with each other, breaking bread house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and singles of heart. They were praising God, having favor with all the people. And in that atmosphere, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts chapter 8, when Philip went down to preach in Samaria. It says, Acts 8 verse 6. It says, And the people with one accord 
Listen to this. The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with the palsies that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Verse 13, Simon the sorcerer, it says, well, he believed and he wondered beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. We just read chapter 3 of Acts recently there. Why are you focused on us as if by our, our power this Jesus has risen from the dead? He's the one who did this. But go to Acts chapter 4 and just notice the effect that it had on the people. Acts chapter 4, the disciples were, uh, uh, sorry, the Sadducees were angry because the disciples were teaching the people about Jesus being raised from the dead. They don't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. But I like what it says in verse 14. Acts 4 verse 14. The Pharisees, it says, beholding the man which was healed standing with them. They could say nothing against it. I think you should underline that verse. And beholding the man. He was 40 years old, never walked in his life. How many decades has he sat at that gate called Beautiful? The whole town knew him. And now they see this man that everybody knew was a cripple. Amazingly, standing up in the midst. How are you going to argue? With that. Verse number 22, it says, He was 40 years old upon whom this miracle was shown. See the word shown? Demonstrated proof that Jesus is alive. The miracle could not be denied. It was visible proof that the message that Jesus, uh, that Peter was preaching, was true. Jesus, who performed miracles while he was on the earth, still heals the sick even after his resurrection. Jesus is alive and he's well. Amen? Amen.